high atop the Colorado building in downtown Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, you're listening to 14th and G, the podcast at the intersection of business and politics. And now, your host, Dean Hingston. Nathan, welcome. Uh, Pleased to be joined today by my good friend Nathan Gonzalez, editor and publisher of Inside Elections and elections analyst for Roll Call. Thank Uh, you for having me. Well, welcome up here to the top of the Colorado building uh, for 14th and G. You know, when when I uh, asked you to join, we thought we'd have some numbers to talk about uh, out of Iowa the day after the caucuses, but uh, here we are and we we still don't know much. Uh, Do we know what happened? Um, I think it's the short answer is it was a, a fiasco. <laughs> I think the it was a, it sounds like it was a combination of things. It was a, a slight changing of the rules. Um, there was also a desire to release different sets of numbers uh, in the I think in the trying to be transparent, but I think that led to confusion. Uh, then there was this app. I think what will go down is one of the most famous apps uh, or collapses of an app in history, and that the reporting was messed up and. And uh, and so that combination resulted in you know we kn- we do not know and we may not ever know the precise results of the Iowa caucuses in 2020, which is insane. Months and months <laughs> and millions and millions of dollars spent by these candidates in the state of Iowa, and we may never actually know the winner. And we know, at the very least. Uh, the winner is gonna is is deprived of any of any sense of victory. Here. Right. I mean, I, I in watching on uh, caucus night, watching Rick Santorum on CNN and continuing to talk about 2012 and when he was declared the winner of the Iowa caucuses. I believe two or three weeks after after <laughs> it was all said and done, and and how he missed his window. But in a way, you know, sure we're surprised. We expected to have results that we could chew over. But I, I feel like in today's day and age, of of course. Iowa was Iowa was messed up because every nothing is normal these days. Nothing is normal. Aren't we overcomplicating the electoral process? Um, and I mean that in the sense of uh, you know this idea that we're that we're digitizing the whole thing. You know, I thought of uh, Robert Caro's masterful uh, biography of LBJ, and the second volume, Means of Ascent, is a recount of the 1948 Senate election. And 70-plus years after that election, we know LBJ cheated. We know how he cheated. We know where he cheated because there was a, there was a paper physical record of what happened in that campaign. And are the returns were, is, is the benefit of, of digitizing our elections worth the cost? Why, why not stick with, stick with the analog method? Well, and it feels like we are going to be sticking with the analog method, or at least a combination of the two, that even if there goes electronic, that there will be a paper trail because of, the, because of what's happened in, in some of these past elections, which I think is fascinating how more and more of our lives are becoming more digital. Very important aspects of our life are, be, are digital, our banking information, our healthcare information. Yet when we're talking about voting and who we, you know, who we are electing, we're moving backwards in the, in the technology. Right. So uh, I just, you know, I get it. I understand why. But it, to me, how can we lock down these other big parts of our life uh, electronically, but not, but not others? I guess my modest proposal would be to set a date, call that the election date, <laughs> uh, put some candidates up there. Uh, people come and vote for the candidate they prefer. 
And the one who gets the most votes wins the election. And, and I, you know, that plays into larger electoral college discussions. But I think that one of the questions coming out of Iowa now is not – I feel like we're talking about whether Iowa continues to be first in the nation. But, and I think that's a two-part question, though. Uh, because is it Iowa, does it go, is the caucus, are the caucuses dead, Iowa moves to a primary and still isn't first, or does this, does Iowa end up getting punished and is pushed further back into the calendar um, because of what happened uh, on Tuesday night? Now, Mr. Jones, you stand under the visitor's basket, and Ms. Johnson, <laughs> you go to the home stands. you know, this, this idea of, of physical separation of people in a physical space, I don't particularly understand it, but... Does this, I mean, we, we've, I think we've had this debate every four years for, for many cycles, but d- does this finally sink Iowa as, as the first winnower of the field? I, well, I was, I guess, a doubter that it was, it might have winnowed the field a, a little bit. Every time I, I think, every four years, I guess I, I start to convince myself that Iowa and New Hampshire won't have this lock on, on the first in the nation status, but they prevail, you know, and their ability, their relationships within the parties uh, are strong. I'm not sure that this is going to change that. So I, I almost default, and in general, I default to nothing major happening unless proven otherwise. But this is a big deal. I mean, the, the, the spotlight was on Iowa, on the Democratic Party, and it just it was, it it was, was a, a disaster. Belly flop. It was a belly flop into the shallow end of the pool, uh, without a doubt. So where does this leave the field, Nathan? We're going to get some idea of what happened. I, I, I would put the conventional wisdom Bernie uh, Sanders and Pete Buttigieg uh, probably finished pretty well in Iowa. I think from what we know, Biden uh, seemed to have underperformed in Iowa. Uh, where, does the, where does this leave the field going into New Hampshire? I think we have the same field that we had before. I think if we had had real results, then it could have jeopardized someone like Senator Amy Klobuchar. I mean, she was putting a lot into Iowa now. We don't, we don't know exactly where she finished. If she had finished, if we knew for sure that she had finished fourth or fifth, I don't know if she could have stayed in. But now it's muddied enough, and she, she was wise, I think, to get out front of the rest of the candidates on caucus night, and all the cable networks took her, you know, took her speech uh, before the others. But I, I thought, you know, this race is too crowded, too complicated, and I think too important to the Democratic Party for people to give up early uh, because they uh, <laughs> they realize defeating Donald Trump is is the most important thing but they see they still see their own path and so I I think we're gonna have the same field going into New Hampshire it seemed like vice president Biden's calculation was uh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to tread water in Iowa New Hampshire I'm gonna get to South Carolina with a large African-American vote and people who think well of him from his service in the Obama administration, and that's going to slingshot me into Super Tuesday. Other uh, other primary candidates have had that same strategy. Problem is, it's never worked. Yeah. Uh, this may give him the runway uh, to make that strategy work and slingshot him into, into Super Tuesday. I think the Iowa fiasco was helpful to Biden because it... it it uh, maybe saved him some embarrassment of where he, if he, he might have finished fifth. You know, we, we probably won't know for sure. But uh, it's still tough. New Hampshire, the polls are not great for Biden in New Hampshire. Um, Nevada is more diverse and, and thus should be better for Biden. But it's also another caucus state where I would expect Sanders to do well. And then we get to South Carolina. And I, I agree um, 
that it's difficult, but I, I try to be open-minded, Dean. About this. <laughs> I think we should all be open. And unless, unless he just flat out runs out of money and, and can't pay the staff, why not stay in? I mean, this is, this is his last chance. This is the last chance for a lot of these uh, politicians to really thrive on, on this big stage. And, and so I think they're gonna, we're going to see an extended fight. And then there's the 50 billion gorilla that's uh, not on the ballot, but uh, but but will be in later states. Uh, what was the effect on Mike Bloomberg? I think there's a portrayal that this was a win. That, I, that what happened in Iowa was a win for Bloomberg because it extended the race. I I can still end up being a doubter. We talked. To, you talked about Biden waiting till South Carolina. We would be we're talking about Bloomberg skipping all of the first four <laughs> states and just sort of jumping in on Super Tuesday, and I'm not sure. I'm skeptical that it, that it's going to work. I, I do think that Bloomberg bought the internet. Uh, maybe it's just the websites that I go to, but he is in, on every website, uh, every website that I I happen to go to. Uh, I think for Bloomberg though, it's more than just um, waiting to Super Tuesday. It's about um, is the primary field calling out for another old white guy? Um, is Bloomberg fundamentally more viewed as more electable than Joe Biden? Because that's what Bloomberg's making the pitch that he can defeat Trump and no one else can. Right. Uh, and there is this thread of anti-corporate, anti-billionaire, um, billionaires sure. thread sure. running through the Democratic primary voters. So are they going to nominate Mike Bloomberg uh, is an open question to me. It seems to me, Nathan, that Bloomberg's basic strategy, waiting really until Super Tuesday uh, to, to, to be on the ballot in a, as a serious contender, really relies on a brokered convention. And uh, it, one, can you t- talk a little bit about the rules when they get to Milwaukee? Uh, the, the superdelegate system has been changed. Uh, this is not the same Democratic convention that we saw in 16, but the chances of, of, of candidates going to the first ballot with, without a majority of delegates? Well, first, we always talk about a brokered convention, and it usually doesn't happen. But, of course, it might, it might this time. Uh, the, one of the key rule changes that, that you're alluding to is that uh, the superdelegates have kind of been shelved for the first round of balloting at the Democratic convention. You know, there was a... Um, complaining on the Bernie Sanders campaign that the superdelegates were in the bag for Hillary Clinton in 2016 and and uh, and, and he was robbed of a nomination. And so the superdelegates were shelved for the first round of balloting. If we get to Milwaukee and, and um, no one has a majority, none of the candidates have a majority of delegates, then there's a second round and superdelegates do come into the process. And I think that that is sort of a nightmare scenario for Democrats if if it gets to that point, because then it will be viewed as, by some in the Democratic Party, as the the establishment, um, you know, hand selecting a candidate once again, which is actually sort of the opposite of why superdelegates were brought into the process. They were right. supposed to. They were brought in to um, give voice to people uh, in, in groups that didn't have a, a full voice in the process, but you know. Things, the, things get the, turned on its head. The Democratic Leadership Council formed after the 88 election, I believe, uh, really in response to the Dukakis candidacy yeah. uh, to, keep, uh, to, to keep candidates more mainstream and saw success with Bill Clinton, one of the founding members of the DLC, uh, in, when he was elected in 92. And I, I think it's interesting that um, 
in a brokered convention scenario, I guess I still don't include Bloomberg. I think it is an extended Biden, Warren, Sanders fight. Interesting. Um, Bloomberg, we have to take seriously with that with that amount of money, and we'll see how it ends up paying off in in Super Tuesday and beyond. But dividing up, reaching in, reaching those thresholds in enough states. Uh, I guess I see it as a Biden, Warren, Sanders scenario. And it seems any system like that, you've you've already got Bernie voters with a sense of grievance from 2016. Uh, maybe the Iowa debacle feeds into that. And any scenario that awards the nomination uh, to a candidate that's not Bernie Sanders uh, is going to is going to feed that grievance. And my sense is, and and I don't know if you've seen this in in actual polling, but my sense is the Venn diagram of Bernie voters who are very open to voting for President Trump, uh, that 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 intersection is is not insignificant. I haven't seen it recently. Um, I'm sure that those voters exist. I I just don't know how many there are. I, I will say this. I know that Republicans are reveling in what's going on on the Democratic side right now, particularly, <laughs> particularly after <laughs> Iowa. And I think what, Demo- what Republicans may be underestimating is the power of President Donald J. Trump to unify the Democratic Party in November of 2020. I, I, I fully expect this Democratic primary to get more nasty, more brutal, more divisive, but I think there's going to be a window in early November when the Democratic Party comes together and says, no more President Trump. And even if Democrats win the White House, the Democratic Party will be divided again about strategy, legislative priorities, and, and what happens. But we have we have a long way to go in this race. Dean, I, I want to bring up, I just wanted to, I was trying to think about the 2016 Republican race. Um, Iowa, after I, between Iowa and New Hampshire, there was a significant development. We had the New Hampshire debate. This is the New Hampshire debate where Chris Christie went after Marco Rubio. Senator Rubio turned into a a robot briefly and and repeated a talking point a few times. But that was so significant because if that hadn't have happened, Rubio would have finished higher in New Hampshire. Kasich probably would have finished fourth, fifth, sixth. Um, But because Rubio dropped, Kasich finished higher than expected and that gave him in his mind the rationale to stay in the race that meant that the anti-Trump coalition never coalesced it was always Cruz and Kasich and a few others at the beginning but it never coalesced in an anti-Trump coalition Uh, and so I I think that that just reminds me that there's going to be a debate a democratic debate on Friday in New Hampshire who knows what's going to happen and who starts throwing Barb's at whom and and what that does to New Hampshire and subsequent states. So many variables and so many moving parts. It's it's hard to predict. Uh, it's hard to predict on an individual basis, you know, how all these interactions are going to come out. I think, though, one thing, you know, and let's, let's turn to President Trump. Uh, we've had a lot go on. I mean, the action in Iraq against the Iranian general, uh, it seems like a lifetime ago. And if you if you think about that until now uh, through the impeachment trial, uh, Gallup out today has Trump at one of his highest points of approval at 49%. Uh, where does, in your view, where, where, what does the polling say? Where does President, President Trump stand with the electorate uh, here at the cusp of the season? Uh, I think Gallup has been running a little hot, at least compared to other 
other polling outfits, but the president's job approval has ticked up a little bit in the past in the past few weeks. Um, what stood out to me is though how remarkably stable the president's opinion around the president has been. That we have every news event, formal House impeachment, you know, killing of general, you know, uh, the general and, and adversaries overseas, and usually it doesn't really change that much. And I think that. The, I don't expect, uh, that's why I don't expect there to be a fundamental change, even heading into November. And I think that leads us to a a close and competitive contest. I think one of the thing, one thing that could change the dynamic is the economy. Uh, The economy is, is, is what's keeping the president afloat, because I think that most Republicans are already going to vote. They know they're going to vote for the president. Almost all Democrats are going to vote against the president. Then you're left with a few voters in the middle. And for them, I think they're weighing, they don't like the tweets, they don't like the name calling, they don't like the circus that kind of surrounds the White House, but they like the direction of the economy. And they're weighing those two things. So if the economy slips a little bit, or the confidence, his the confidence in his ability to handle the economy slips, then those independents are just left with, do they like waking up and hearing about what he's, the president's tweeted? And that's not a great <laughs> matchup. But if the if the economy stays healthy or, or the confidence in him, then that's that's his ace in the hole. It's the oldest uh, it's the oldest uh, platform on which to run peace and prosperity. And and where we're I feel like Republicans in town, though there's some nonchalant. This I, I I talked to a Republican who was you know well there's no recession so he's going to win like well. <laughs> Under normal circumstances, yes, the president under these economic times should be running away with this race, but even he can't stay focused. If he went to all these rallies and just said, uh, and just focused on the economy, 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 I'm not sure Democrats could win, but he's always distracted by something else. He's settling a score. He's 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 all over the place. He's his Trump own worst enemy. Trump even said it in his uh, in in his pre Super Bowl interview with Sean Hannity. I don't know if you saw. He said these numbers. I should be up twenty points. Yes, he's right. <laughs> he's, he's right. But he's he's you know he is not a typical president. So applying historical. Um, models for projecting the presidency that are often heavily based on the economy don't exactly fit because uh, he always has other things, other things that are going on. It's amazing, and we were talking a little bit about this before, but and you referenced the the Marco Rubio gaffe uh, in, in in the New Hampshire debate. These sort of uh, these sort of political uh, missteps that uh, slay mere mortal politicians. Uh, just do not seem to affect President Trump. No, uh, Republicans have come to either accept or justify um, what he does. Democrats are, no matter what the president does, they're going to they're going to hate it and, and be against it. And so it's you know we have we're locked firmly in our camps. And what it brings to mind to my mind, what does the Republican Party look like when President Trump is no longer the president? Because uh, anybody who, any other candidate or politician who tries to emulate him, they just look silly or they look mean. Right. And it just doesn't, because that's not who they are. That's who he is. But, you know, we've seen in some house races, you, you put on a red hat and you try to, you know, tell it like it is. And it just, it's off brand for so many politicians. Um, there's, there's not another one like him. Nathan, I think of, and I'm sure you've seen this map, I think of this map from the 2016 election results, and uh, it was, it's, a, it's a county-by-county map of, uh, of Obama counties that went for Trump in 16, and it's sort of an arc that starts in western Pennsylvania, 
runs up through Ohio, across Michigan, uh, Wisconsin. And that really, what used to be called the Blue Wall Mm -hmm. uh, in those Rust Belt states, uh, that's really what turned the election for President Trump. What do what do those those are the, the, that seems to me the real battleground of this election yep. and what do those states look like as we as we start the year? Well, without knowing the nominee, um, it's a little difficult uh, because I do I, I think that I believe Senator Warren and Senator Sanders can win under certain circumstances. It's not just Joe Biden or, or it's over, but I think what the race is really going to come down to is. How many more votes can Republicans and the president squeeze out of the rural areas? And how many more votes can Democrats squeeze out of the urban and suburban areas? That I'm not sure that we're going to see a lot of those counties that flipped from Obama to Trump flip back. But we're going to be talking about the margins in those uh, margins in those places. And I think one of the key differences in 2016 and 2020 is that Democratic enthusiasm is so much higher in 2020 than it was in 2016 when some Democrats took the race for granted. They didn't think Trump was going to win or they're still bitter over the primary. But we learned from 2018 the Democrats are not taking things for granted anymore. They're turning out, they're voting, and particularly in the suburbs. We haven't, I don't think we've seen an election result since 2016 that has shown anything positive for Republicans in the suburbs. The question is how many more votes can Democrats get out of those areas? Um, but we've also seen the Democrats probably haven't reached the floor in rural areas. There was that redo election in North Carolina in September. Same two candidates that faced each other yep. in 2018, faced each other almost a year later. And what it, same result, but the Democratic nominee did better in the Charlotte suburbs than the year before, but worse in the rural, uh, in the in the more rural parts of the district. And I, I feel like that's a microcosm into what we're going to see in the presidential and. 2020 in November. Yeah, I think the hope from Republicans and, and 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 certainly from the president's team is that there is a there is a segment of voter that will only turn out when Donald Trump's on the ballot. And is is that something is that something you see, something you believe, something we know from the data from 2016? Well, I mean, just presidential turnouts higher. <laughs> you know, right. there are just more voters, and I, that's going to be the case. Actually, my my lock prediction for November is that we're going to have record turnout because whether people love or hate the president, they're turning out to vote, and it's just going to drive numbers. I think beyond uh, you know, beyond historical historical norms. But um, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I do think that there are people who are coming out for the president, but the down-ballot effect is really what I'm interested in. And, for example, how, how much – what does the president need to win by in order to boost some House Republican challengers who are severely underfunded? Um, what, what, what does his win margin need to be for them to win? Because right. <clears throat> I feel like some of the confidence – some of the Republican confidence is looking at those Trump districts, the 30 Trump districts that are currently held by a, a Democrat in the House. But in some of those, the Democratic incumbent has a $2 million cash advantage that could get to a $3 million cash advantage when we get to November. And how much does that really matter? I I, I don't know. I think it's going to be tougher down ballot than what Republicans are expecting. Well, let's go down ballot, but not as far down as the House. Uh, let's start with the Senate. You don't care about the House, dude? Come on. <laughs> it's Senate guy. Senate all, guy. No matter, no matter what. Only the Senate. Senate majority near and dear to my heart. 
Um, and uh, let's let's just run through uh, the the top elections I put in terms of uh, incumbent challenges uh, in Georgia, Alabama, Arizona, Maine, North Carolina, and Colorado. Uh, how do you how do you rank those? I'll start wherever you want. If <clears throat> if we're ranking the vulnerable Republican senators, that's how I, I do it in my mind. I would put Cory Gardner first. I would put Martha McSally of Arizona second. I would put Tom Tillis of North Carolina in uh, in that third slot. The next tier, I think, is would be Susan Collins of Maine, Joni Ernst in Iowa, uh, both Georgia races, Texas, and the Kansas open seat. Um, the Kansas open seat, you know, particularly if Republicans nominate Chris Kobach, uh, who lost the 2018 gubernatorial race. So just in the math, if you take those first three and Republicans win those and they win the White and, and if Democrats win those and, uh, and win the White House, that would be 50 with the vice president being the tiebreaker. The challenge, though, is that I don't think Doug Jones of Alabama is coming back. So then Republicans or Democrats need to make up for that loss somewhere else. And so I won't run through all those other Senate seats again, but... I could explain why Democrats might be an underdog in each of them. But when you take a step back and say Democrats might only need to win one of those six races or Republicans might need to find a way to screw up one of those six races. Like how possible is that? Well, that's those aren't terrible. Those aren't terrible odds. But that's why the White House result matters, because the Senate could be so close that the vice president being the tiebreaker uh, is uh, the, the deciding factor. The Georgia race is uh, is is the most fascinating to me. You've got uh, you've you've got one incumbent running for re-election. You've got one appointed senator, uh, and now a pretty substantial primary challenge uh, in Doug Collins versus uh, versus Senator Leffler. And the ch- there are a couple of fascinating things with the race. One is that uh, because it's a special election, all of the candidates in the Leffler race are going to run on the same ballot in November. If there's not, if no one gets a majority, it moves to a January runoff. So it's possible that we don't know the Senate majority until January of 2021. It's also an interesting race because Doug, uh, Congressman Doug Collins uh, is—he's uh, the uniter. He has managed to unite the NRSC and the Club for Growth against him. <laughs> like, if you would have told either if either of us that, you know, six, eight years ago we would have we would have laughed but he's 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 doing it but you know, collins is he has plenty of campaign cash in his own account that he can transfer from the house race to the senate race i don't know exactly how it turns out but i think collins has benefited from he had a couple weeks of he was the face of defending president trump right. on tv and right. with primary voters and I think a lot of Georgia primary voters don't remember who the owner of their WNBA basketball team was. You know, she is going to have to work uh, to get herself known because she is not as much of a household name with primary voters as what he is. Amazing that uh, Club for Growth had a $3 million ad buy uh, all teed up the day after uh, Collins announced. Imagine that. Closing out, uh, Nathan, uh, State of the Union is uh, tonight. I expect President Trump uh, strolls into the House chamber like macho man Randy Savage. <laughs> uh, total and complete victory. What do, you, what do you expect out of the speech tonight? What do you think the atmosphere in the chamber is going to be like this evening? It's going to be – it's always awkward. I think it's going to be more tense than before. 
Um, I, I don't think that the president thinks very fondly of half of the chamber uh, that will be there. And I don't think half the chamber thinks very fondly <laughs> of him. It's a mutual feeling, isn't it? And so <laughs> does it, you know, what does it look like on TV and in there? Uh, you know, will it be change? Will there be an outburst or will somebody walk out and, and all the media coverage, you know, focuses on that person? I, I, don't, I don't know. But what I, you know, I, I would expect the president to certainly um, tout uh, what he what he believes are his accomplishments, and that be a preview of what he's going to what he's going to run on in, in 2020. I mean, that's what I'm looking for. What are the what are the key accomplishments that he's going to focus on? Uh, because that's that's going to just be protracted into the rallies and, and promises made, for promises nine, kept. Nine months. Right. Nathan Gonzalez, editor and publisher of Inside Elections and Roll Call Elections Analyst. Thanks for joining me on 14th and G. Thank you.